0: Welcome to The Job Shop Show, where we talk with the owners, suppliers, partners, and customers of custom manufacturers. Listen and learn the secrets of top-performing job shops, the tools, techniques, and backgrounds that made them successful, all in the quest of raising the bar for custom manufacturing. I am your host, Jay Jacobs. This episode is sponsored by Paperless Parts. Paperless Parts is the secure estimating and quoting software Built by manufacturers for manufacturers. Communicate better, quote faster, win new customers, and keep your shop secure with their cloud-based, ITAR-registered, and CMMC-compliant platform. See for yourself why hundreds of job shops and contract manufacturers choose Paperless Parts by visiting paperlessparts.com. Shazam! This is Jay Jacobs. Welcome to the Job Chop Show. When... You don't have any cash, you get innovative because you have to. And this can spark some really exciting and different ways of doing things, things that might be risky when you're operating smoothly, or at least they seem too risky. I'll debate you there. With us today is Jesse Casto, a newer shop owner in Texas, spinning out of a legacy of machining. Jesse's shop has a great name, Better CNC. And we learn what is behind that name, which will probably surprise you in a good way and why he doesn't call it best CNC. We get into tabbing, the fundamental machining methodology Jesse uses. I've been really interested in tabbing for quite a while and Jesse dives deep, shares how it works for him and his different strategies on approaching the programming. So much more, many really cool, nitty gritty tips and tricks that Jesse implements to make himself more efficient, because he has to. He is definitely a leader in the new generation of machine shop owners. And it was such a pleasure to learn his story, chat with him, and find out the ways that a digital native Is approaching the running of a shop. Let's plunge in. Welcome to the Job Shop Show, Jesse. Good morning. So good to chat with you today. And I originally came across you because I was on LinkedIn and I don't do this a lot. I try not to be on social media and I'll consider LinkedIn social media, although it's obviously more business. And you had a post on tabbing on LinkedIn. And I was like, it's really cool because. Having was sort of raising its head about the time I sold my shop, and we did not get into it at all. However, I know there's a lot of shops that are using that. So I want to dive into that topic at some point. But let's start out. You are a small shop owner, yet you're taking the time to create posts on LinkedIn. And why do you post on LinkedIn?
1: I'd say I definitely post more than I think a lot of guys do, but I still want to be more active than I am which I think is a lot of the case for a lot of people. But to me, and I had a conversation like this about my website as well, I view it as a necessity with the way things are going, the environment, the technology of the world, where it, if you're not connected or able to be found anywhere online, then it's about as the same as not existing.
2: Mm-hmm. So you're creating content.
1: Yeah, getting better at it, but yeah, I'm just kind of picking as I go what I could, what I think would be interesting to see.
0: Well, it worked, it connected you and I, And so how often do you post? How do you think about posting? What what drives the do you say? I've got to post once a week or whenever it happens. So you might post twice a week and then not for a couple of weeks.
1: I'm trying to get into the habit of posting at least once a week. I actually just put a video up a couple of days ago where I'm going to start trying to do a little thing I'm calling Tooling Tuesday where I talk a little bit about some of the tools we use, things like that in the shop and explain what it is, why we do it, what the benefit is there, things like that.
0: Yeah. Uh, How do you come up with your topics?
1: No particular strategy right now. I do So a big thing with me is I'm always experimenting. I love trying out new things and and Mm -hmm. seeing things I've never done before, doing things I've never done before. So usually if I get something in particular, that's just a really cool, cool thing that gets me excited, I try and, Keep that in mind and put that up at some point to share it out a little bit, let others know. Because I get get excited and you can ask my wife, I'll prattle on all day about all these new things (laughs) I'm trying out.
0: (laughs) Well, that's what we're gonna do today. And I definitely hear you. I find one of the reasons I post is it helps me clarify my thinking because if you are trying to communicate a succinct message across LinkedIn or, or somewhere else, then all the pieces have to come together in, and be clear. So it actually makes your thinking, or at least it makes my thinking, a lot more clear on a topic by doing that. And then the, the bonus is, of course, that you create content.
1: Yeah. You no, know, for me, I'm writing, writing it out helps a little bit, but I'm, I like to talk my ideas out loud a lot mm-hmm. of times like if, if i type something i'll be sitting here saying it out loud to myself where somebody walking by thinks i'm on the phone or something like that just because i I like to hear my own
0: i like to hear what i'm writing out do you use the audio to text feature in word
1: no i don't really do the word to text very much basically I'll i'll talk as i type and i'll read it out loud again and then i'll go back and tweak it and read it just back gotcha. and forth until i'm happy with it
0: can you point to some business that you've gotten Specifically, because of a post or posts.
1: So I've gotten a couple newer customers that have found me over LinkedIn, and it's surprisingly, they're actually larger companies in my area. I don't
2: know if I'm able to say the company name on here. Sure. Uh, but I've I've gotten a, a international company that actually hooked up with me over LinkedIn.
0: That I do was that a now. was that a engineer or a purchasing person? How- uh, it was an engineer.
1: So a lot of times. when i I do these posts i think of who i want to see it i like one is just to show off to other machinists start a conversation there but Mm -hmm. i also know a lot of engineers a lot of design engineers love seeing this stuff as well because i regularly get them coming by my facility and they're just uh, google all all the toys that i get to play with every day
0: i think that that's a really important point because if you think about the design engineers there used to be a lot more hands on, whether they had a shop within their own facility or it was a lot more permissible to go on what I'll call field trips and get into a shop like yours and understand how someone was making their design. And that has closed down a lot. COVID certainly didn't help. The ability, though, for you to help an engineer or designer understand the manufacturing process has to be really valuable. And so when we're thinking of that content, you, you, as you said, you're thinking of your audience. It's Some of it's the other machine, machinists. However, the becoming a source of trusted information for designers and engineers is really cool. And then you become that trusted source and they say, well, let me see if I can trust them with actually making the parts for me.
1: Yeah, no. It's especially, I've noticed it a lot, a lot more and more over the last couple of years. Is I'm working with more engineers that have no manufacturing experience in any capacity, and some of them don't even make drawings. A lot of companies are moving away from drawings completely, uh, which is fine. I tell, I tell, pretty much tell them I need a drawing that tells me what the holes are. If you have threads, press fit, slip fit, or tight tolerances, I'm actually working with some of
2: my customers just on how to do drawing formatting because mm. they have no understanding of it.
0: Right. The sort of a, a what I call a control drawing, I I would ask customers, you know, give me 3D view of the part, as well as the sort of the, the different faces of the part. Give me the overall dimensions and then point out any critical features and things like yeah. holes that may not be easy to extract from 3D data. What CAD systems are people sending you? Are you getting mostly STEP or IGES files or what type of files? Get. So most of
1: the time is step. Step seems to be the the new standard versus I just was what I just was ten years ago or so. But yeah, most of it's step. A lot of my customers work in SolidWorks. Uh,
2: mm-hmm.
1: Every once in a while, I get something from Creo, but Creo doesn't seem to play as nice with other softwares. With their Bio any format. other,
0: are you seeing anything from any other CAD systems?
1: Not specifically. SolidWorks definitely seems to still be the be the dominant force in by at least in my world.
0: That's what I always saw too. not checked in lately to see if it's changed. The LinkedIn posts, let's get back into some of those. So you said you're starting a cooling Tuesday, and you did one on drills, which is very recent. Why did you decide to go to carbide drills?
1: So a big thing for me starting my company, better CNC is to find better ways of doing things. And Mm -hmm. the world that I came up in, we programmed with Gibbs cam, and in Gibbs cam, you Every every time you program the part, you had to define the tool. You had to set all your feeds and speeds, which made it a really difficult environment to, you did not want to use quality tooling because everybody programs a little bit differently and they might not hit the right feed and speed. But here I use Fusion 360, which actually, which actually gives me a tooling library. And okay. in that library, I've got all my cutting recipes defined for every tool. Mm -hmm. So whether I'm using a half inch or using an it at full depth, half depth, whatever it is, I actually have a specific recipe for that occasion. And with with that kind of control, why not use the best tool that I can get? If I don't have to worry about the next programmer coming in behind me using a different feed and speed for a a tool with a narrow scope of recipes, then I can always use it because I can trust what's there.
0: Are you the only one programming now or are you thinking... Maybe you are, maybe you aren't. but are you thinking as you expand because you have a tooling library that you are putting the guardrails in place for other programmers?
1: Yeah, so right now i'm I'm the only programmer. So this is all just forward thinking. This is everything everything right. I do, I try and keep it with others doing it in mind.
0: And when you started out, were you using less expensive drills drills and materials for your drills?
1: Oh, yeah. I started out with a Tormo in my garage. So I didn't have a lot of power and I was I was backing myself, so I didn't have a lot of funding. So yeah, I was I was buying what little bitty tools I can get, budget everything at that point.
0: And how much as a percentage do you think you sp- is par by drills over the other types of drill tooling that you were using before? And and how do you make up that cost difference? So the
1: tools I'm buying now are probably three to six times more expensive than what I started with. Mm. And to me, the benefit just comes from the, the tool life will be a lot longer, my cycle times are significantly reduced. But yeah, the big, biggest gain is just the cycle times, knocking those down, because drills, drills take up a lot of air time. So the more you can keep it in the material
0: plunging, the faster. Why is the cycle time reduced so much? With carbide.
1: So with the standard tools with high speed steel and cobalt tooling, they don't really like to peck as deep. Typically with those tools you want to go two maybe three times the peck depth. Mm-hmm. With carbide tooling without internal coolant, uh, I'm going five times
2: the depth and I'm going at about three times the feed rate. Really? Versus what I was before. Yeah, and I'm getting more production work and that's where you really start to see those times stack up quickly.
0: Sure. Sure. I'm gonna keep diving into LinkedIn posts. However, you brought up your company name, Better CNC. And maybe I should have started there. <laughs> this is such a great story on why you're better CNC and not best CNC. Lay it on us.
1: Yeah. So how I got to the name better is a couple of different things, but my, my family, my dad and my grandpa are both entrepreneurs as well. My mm-hmm. grandpa is in the hot rod world. My dad's a mechanical engineer and I came up in his shop. But when I was a little kid, I remember I was talking to my grandpa about my dad's business. And he told me to start a business and be successful. You don't need to come up with a new idea. You don't need to be something nobody's ever heard of. You can do the same thing as everybody else, just a little bit better. And so that's kind of where I got the word in my head and it kind of evolved and it kind of really fit with the way I do things, the way I experiment, the way I'm always looking to do something faster, quicker, better quality, everything. I decided that there is no such thing as best. There is always better. Whatever you think best is now next week could be out of date. And so I decided I'm I'm not going to be best, but I'll always be better.
0: Best is then more of an endpoint, and you don't think it ever ends.
1: Yep. So yeah, best best means you've you hit the end. You've hit the peak. There's nowhere else to go. But better means, I think I did something great today. But I could look at it next week and say, oh, if I did this, I'd
2: be a little bit better. I could change this or that. There's always improvement to be made.
0: I love that. That, it was one of the the joys I got out of running rapid is I'll, I'll use your better mentality, and when I sold the shop, I. was sort of bummed because i thought there were so many things we could still do better and i hadn't had the chance to implement them with the team give the team a chance to come up with some of the better solutions and the opportunity to keep pushing and innovate and not be satisfied with what you have still would look back and say yeah we were doing stuff that no one else was doing and we were ahead of the pack there was still so much more ahead we we were better not best and that yeah. resonates so much
1: yeah and to me that's a, that's one of the most fun things about it is if you're at the best and you're doing you you've come to the end of your path and you're doing the same thing every day but i like the hunt i like the chasing what's what's the next improvement what's the tweak next week we can do a little bit faster that's one of the most exciting parts for me
0: one of those better things is tabbing so let's get back into some of your yeah. your linkedin posts which <laughs> capture some of the some of the innovations that you're bringing into your shop talk to me about tabbing why are you tabbing parts rather than using traditional fixtures
1: so the environment I came up in where I, I learned how to machine and how to program and everything, we were ex- almost exclusively a prototype shop.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So every everything we did was a one-off, two-off, five-off, ten-off at most. Uh, and I learned in that environment that when you're doing one piece, the setup time is the biggest part of your day.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So anything you could possibly do to reduce that. And then that combined with starting with the Tormach in my garage, where I had very limited tooling and fixturing and capability there, I had to find different ways of doing things instead of taking all this extra time. So something I've I've seen before and I always kind of wanted to play with and see what else I could do with was, was tabbing. So that gave me the ability, instead of having to put on clamps and stop it and move the clamps once I cut a little bit more, mm-hmm. I could just grab the whole part and run it complete in one go, depending on what it is. Would
0: you? Step back and describe a listener who may not know what tabbing is, what what the premise of tabbing involves.
1: So tabbing is pretty much most of the time, whenever you're working on a plate, you put clamps on two ends of the part, you machine everything you can around those clamps, and then you put on more clamps and remove the first ones and finish the part. What tabbing lets me do is I put clamps on the outside of the material and I machine the entire part within the outside of the stock and what i do is i leave small tabs i basically leave tabs that are five to ten thousandths thick depending on what the material is all around the part that are very easy for me to break off and deburr so i have a good clean finished
2: part but it lets me do something that would be a two or three stage part in one stage this is where it gets a little
0: bit head scratching so you (laughs) let's say you machine side one and if you, you flip yep. it over and you are putting pressure on your machining and you're only leaving five, ten thousandths of material, the part's not moving, you are able to, with that thin web, hold the part enough that you're holding your tolerances, yet you can simply snap the tabs off after deburr a little and you're good to go. How does that work?
1: So it took me a while to kind of find the magic combination. But typically what I'll do is before, because the tabs are usually at the bottom of your profile. They're at at the bottom of one of the last cuts you make. Mm
2: -hmm. And
1: so I'll pretty much work by Z height and I'll go to the first, for the first highest height, do everything Mm -hmm. there, the next one down, everything there, next one down, everything there. Mm -hmm. Uh, And before I actually break it out to the tabs, I'll do the profile of the part, leaving 20 or 30 thousandths of an inch all around finish the wall and then i just do a real a little bit of a slower cut wow. right at that tab level and break through and leave the
2: tabs behind
0: so you're not so you're leaving in a sense a thicker tab and then yeah. thinning that out at the end so there's not a lot of force if you're taking off ten thousands or so yeah
1: so as you as you get closer to that tab your cut gets a little bit lighter and a little bit lighter just to pick keep that pressure off
0: are there any cam programs you're using fusion now yeah remember are there any cam programs that are automating tabbing so that there's that that's more of a standard and there's less work for the programmer
1: so fusion 360 does have a built-in tab feature and that's really what helped me get started where you could tell it to automatically you could tell it you want tabs you could tell it the height the Mm -hmm. width everything like that and it
2: Hmm. it'll either
1: automatically lay them around the part or you can tell it where you want it around the part, things like that.
2: So it, it
0: gives you something to edit.
1: Yeah. So yeah, it gives you a starting point, but it doesn't tell you how to get there.
0: How good is it as a starting point? How much would you say it's 50% of the way there, 80% of the way there, once you punch in your numbers, how much editing do you have to do after?
1: So for most basic parts, it's, it's, probably eighty ninety percent of the way there at least. Some of the more complex stuff I've done, I've had to be real particular about where I set the tabs and things like that, and that gets a little more complex. But for basic plate work that most guys do where they're having a, having to move clamps around,
2: mm-hmm. it's
0: just about one and done. Wow. Awesome. What else about tabbing? If I wanted to try it myself should i know
1: so with tabbing if you're if you're first getting into it i think just be real careful with your order of operations that's the thing that took me the longest is because you're doing a full slot and in mills mm-hmm. tooling don't they don't like to do a full slot so finding that right order of operations to where you don't get chatter and you get a good
2: finish on your walls that's going to take a little bit of time a little bit of figuring out
0: to get so there. trying to simplify this a little in my head if I am. If I know that there is going to be chatter or potential chatter in a particular feature, that's probably what I want to attack first. And yeah. while I have more part is more solid from a fixturing standpoint, and then hit some of the other features that I know won't move the part around. It. Is that a good way of saying it?
1: Yeah, pretty much. You you work with. Because you still need the part, because whenever you think about machining, you, your part needs to be held firm. It needs to be mm-hmm. held very rigid as you machine it. So the tabs, that's one reason why before I get to the, all the tab level, I leave just a thin flange essentially all around the part. That's 20 or 30,000 thick, because that's actually a, a lot stronger than you think it is. Just having so a little, little little bit there.
0: So this is important. This, these are the nitty gritty details that yep. I'm searching for, Jesse the tabs let's say we say we have a six by nine inch part in the plate and so you are going to have a flange all the way around relatively thin and then what would be how many tabs and what would the size of the tabs be that essentially you would machine away let's say that 30 thousandths some of that 30 thousandths flange and, and there would only be tabs in certain areas. So how many, how many tabs say, and how, let's say cut length along with the cut length, would they be along the edge of the part?
2: Yeah. So when I think about
1: tab positioning on, on a part, I think about where I want clamps. So it definitely depends on the material. You can have fewer tabs on aluminum, than plastic. So Mm -hmm. if you're on a six by nine plate, if you're just doing two clamps out here, then you're going to be bowing in the middle. So you actually mm-hmm. probably want to add something right here as well. So depending on and the size, for, for the list, for the pattern. listener who
0: can't yeah. see we're we're on video, you don't get to see the video, but Jesse's pointing down in the middle.
1: Yeah. So yeah, let's say you're on that six by nine part. You got a, you would, on, if it was aluminum, you would clamp it on the each side of the nine inch length. Mm-hmm. But if you're working on plastic, you might be bowing the plastic towards the center of it. So you'd want to set, add clamps to the top and bottom of that length to hold the center down and keep that bow down. So pretty much I do my tabs in similar positions where I would essentially put them where I think the clamps would go. And then depending on the material, I may make the tab a little bit thicker, I may make it a little bit wider because some materials, have, as they get brittle, then they may break from the vibration before you even finish machining
0: it. Let's talk about then materials for tabbing. Aluminum seems pretty straightforward, plastic, they're because of the stresses that are in the material, you might have to have some strategies there and anybody who machines plastics knows sort of those basic strategies. What other materials, when you're talking about brittle, are you talking the standard steels, stainless, other materials?
1: Yeah, so I've done it with pretty much everything we've done here. I've done it with acetyl, peat, aluminum. I've done it with stainless steel. I think the, the post that I had that caught your eye was 18 steel. Mm. that was a that was actually the first time around I did it with that one and with that I could actually make the tab I think the tabs were like two thousand thick when I was finished something like that
2: they 2000s. were incredibly small on in that one wow as long as as long as your machine can hit that height every time especially on that part when I was double-sided
0: yeah that's that's pretty sweet okay I'm, I wish I had a shop to to try out tabbing <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah that, any other fun
0: one well I want, I've got a bunch of other th- questions. Anything else about tabbing? Because I think tabbing is a game changer for prototype shops. And if they're not using it, something to to try out.
1: Yeah, I think about say if you're doing a one-off plate, I think tabbing makes more sense than anything else just because there is no prep. I literally clamp it to a plate that already has holes in it and I start cutting away. Mm-hmm. There's maybe a little bit more handwork, but when you're doing one piece, that's not a big
2: deal.
0: You know, you talked about a tooling library in Fusion 360. Can you create a template tab library as well so you can plop standard tabs in place rather than have to recreate them or does that even make sense? Would it be faster to use a template if you had them?
1: I think having having a guide to let you know what thicknesses and widths per material is beneficial. Fusion 360 doesn't have anything where you can you could set defaults where it's the same number every time, but
0: it, do, it doesn't I have see. that.
1: But now no. having a guide where you know what thickness for what material, what width for what material, depending on how you're approaching it.
0: So you're talking more like you have your own spreadsheet. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got that uh, on the screen and you're, you're pulling that out. Cool. Well, yeah. cool. locating parts with a dowel as opposed to a ten thousand dollar probe. <laughs> What's that all about? So
1: that's actually not even me. That is my new machine. So in September, we got a Microdynamics 30 b <laughs> And Microdynamics, they've only been around for, I think, five to seven years or so. But it's an absolute tank of the machine. But this machine has feedback sensors on every axis. It has it on the X, Y, and Z. And if you have five axis, I believe it has it on the A and B as well. Hmm. But they added a module to the machine where it'll actually use a half-inch dowel pin sets besides the material just like a probe does
0: really yeah that it's sounds a, like it saves a lot of money
1: oh yeah i didn't i didn't have save me about 10 to 15 grand on a Renshaw probe and it's accurate and it's about the same accuracy as well i can measure i mean you can measure paper with it
0: and if you break a dowel pin which obviously would be half inch dowel pin would be pretty hard <laughs> to break but we all know that probes once in a while there's a gotcha and they're expensive Uh, to replace or fix
1: yeah well the the way this functions even if it was a standard probe pretty much whenever i do a probing cycle Mm -hmm. the moment i tell it to start probing it is in basic what i call feel mode at that Mm -hmm. point on it is looking for contact in any direction it's moving even if it doesn't anticipate it'll raise an alarm uh Mm -hmm. because once or twice i've I've set my parameters incorrectly and it came down on the part when it should have came off the side but because it's in feel mode, it literally felt it to touch something and stopped
2: immediately.
0: So does that work also with any of the perversing functions? If you, if you tell a machine to move across the part and, and it knows that there shouldn't be anything in the way, is it automatically in feel mode?
1: Only in the probing cycles.
0: Only in the probing cycles. I wonder if they could do it in that sort of, in your rapid movements as well.
1: Possibly, I'll have, to, I'll have to let them know I'm 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 in contact with one of the guys developing the system, so I could let like, give them that feedback, see if that would be something they could do.
0: Yeah, <laughs> because I'm thinking a lot of the inadvertent crashes, like you say, is you for whatever reason there's material or maybe a part of your fixture that's in the way yeah. of your traverse and um, a or a clamp bam. or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Huh. Okay, and. <laughs> How did you find out about microdynamics? You're a small shop, huge investment, buying a brand new machine tool. Maybe tell me all about that decision and why you chose the microdynamics and what the benefits are for you and in, in how you're using it.
1: Yeah, so let's say, like I said, I, I started with a Tormach milling machine in my garage. Mm-hmm. And I moved into this facility last year and I added a 2005 Leadwell vertical milling center. Uh, I bought it from my local distributor and they sell, they have sold Lee Wells and Kitamura machines for years and years and years. But when micro got started, they started dealing that machine as well. And so when it came, I had my lead well, I was keeping it loaded. I needed another machine that could really keep up. And the Tormach was just not, not fast enough for me.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: I got to talking to them and they showed me the micro. And so I just like it because I started with the Tormach and I got a 20 year old lead well that can run circles around the Tormach. But now I have this microdynamics that runs circles around my lead well. So with with the setup benefits of having a dowel pin like that, the rapid speeds, the high RPM, the high horsepower that this machine has, all in its package stock. They do not add it on. That's the base. It just it it didn't make sense not to get it.
0: What's the table size? What is spindle speeds? And give me some of the the parameters yeah. of the machine.
1: So. The one I got, I got the 30V, which means I've got 30 inches on X, 20 on Y, and 20 on Z. It's a 15,000 horse or 15,000 RPM machine with 40 horsepower behind it.
2: Mm. So
1: I can do high-speed machining at the high RPM, but I can also run at lower speeds and, and shred through any of the hardest metals out there. And it also rapid's at 2,000 inches per minute. It can feed at almost 800 inches, inches per minute, and it taps at 6,000 RPM. So while a lot of these machines, they're they're I stick with general machines because I do a wide variety of work, but this is kind of a general machine that's phenomenally good at everything it does.
0: From just Sounds like it because you can you can drill tap as well. You don't have to buy a specific machine for that.
1: Yeah, no, with I've, I've the first time I used it. I mean, I was I loaded a, a M2.5 5, 5 tap to go in copper and I ran it at 3000 RPM. And I loaded that tap and I watched it come down. And right before I started, I was ready to just hear that tap snap or something go wrong. But I mean, it just perfectly just in and out in about a quarter of a second.
0: Oh, shit. Yeah, that thing's (laughs) insane. (laughs) That's awesome. And what did that run? And you bought it new, right?
1: Yeah, I bought this one brand new. How
2: much was it?
1: Oh, this this machine with everything I've got on it is based, I didn't add on anything. It was about 98,000. So getting a package like that under six figures was kind of was kind of their goal setting out this machine. Is to give you yeah, top it tiers, sounds top, like, it
0: top it sounds like you got yeah, a, a lot of bang bag. for the buck there. So yeah. That's that's sweet. I saw this is the beauty of your LinkedIn. I saw that <laughs> you financed that. and you talk about why you you financed with can you talk about how you financed and why you chose the particular finance source that you did
1: yeah so buying a tour if you get on their website they 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 direct you towards geneva capital uh, mm-hmm. and when i was getting started i had to, i had to finance the tour as well but i was working full-time at a job everything like that i don't have any any money behind me or anything Mm -hmm. So I had, I had to finance the machine and reaching out to Geneva, setting up with them was almost like a job interview. I mean, they did a credit check and everything like that, but because they're used to working with startups and smaller businesses, the whole process was really, they were like that. They wanted to see what my background was. They wanted to talk to me, see if I had a roadmap and a game plan for getting my business going uh, more than they cared about any other details.
0: So they were willing to lend you money on a machine tool even though you were working full-time somewhere else and this was something that did you literally put in your garage
1: yeah yeah Yeah. i had it when i first started i had a two-car garage with two cars in it two project cars that i have in it and i had the machine squeaked in the very front corner where i had just a little bit of space i literally i had a 65 beetle when Uh i first started as the machine was running i'd be sitting on the front fender waiting for it to finish
2: it's funny (laughs) (laughs)
0: I have not heard of Gen- Geneva Capital, is mm-hmm. that correct? Yeah. yeah. The ER then it sounds like really embedded into the machining industry and comfortable and they probably have enough experience to, to know when people are gonna be successful or not. Did you have to put any money down on that first machine?
1: I did do, I think it was like a 5% down payment or something, something fairly minimal, which, What initially got me to pull the trigger on all this is we had sold our house uh, Mm i moved to a new house and we still had some money left over everything and my wife was always seeing me looking up machines and just thinking man if i could only get that i could be miles ahead of where i am now and she nudged me to pull the trigger on it i got to talking to him we had enough for the down payment
2: yeah
0: was what was the term? Did they was it principal and interest from the get go, or did they start you out interest only for a period of time and then move into principal?
1: So the machines, the machines I have are actually on leases.
0: Leases, okay. So
1: they 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 bought and own the machine at the end of the lease. I forget what I have my current machines, it's
2: like 1% or 10% of the value at the end of the lease in their mind.
0: Gotcha. But that helps so you taxes. And what? period of time is the lease over?
1: Right now, my my the Tormach, I believe, was a three-year lease. And my lead well was a $35,000 machine. It's a three-year lease. And my MicroDynamics, the $98,000 machine, is a five-year lease behind it.
0: So, yeah, so they've gotten to know you. You've proved to be a good credit risk. Did they still require money down for the next two machines? How did that work
1: on the lead? Well, I didn't have to put any money down. That was kind of the one was a little more unique Uh, on the micro. I still I had to put, I think, still just 5% of it down or basically, Mm -hmm. basically the first and last month
2: payment almost like renting an apartment.
0: Sure. Did you look at any other financing options or? And I'm going to answer the question. You can tell me if I'm (laughs) right or wrong, but my suspicion is like a lot of small shop owners. Financing is not your forte and you've got better things to do than haggle with a bunch of bankers who are going to put terms you don't understand on the table in many cases. Was that, they made it so easy, is that why you, and and you thought the interest rate was fair, is that why you stayed with them as your financer? yeah, and I'm going so, to say finance or because whether it's a loan or a lease, yeah. it's, it's one I and mean, the same, it's, essentially. The machine's mine. Yeah.
1: So getting the micro with it in particular, because it was going to be a higher payment, I, I decided what I wanted to be paying per month. I was like, this is my number. If I if they can't mm. do it, I'll reach out. I'll try a couple other people. And if I, if I can't make it happen, I can't make it happen yet. And mm. Unfortunately, when I reached out to them, the first number they gave me was was under my
2: target. Bingo. able so just pull the trigger right there. Yeah. Really yeah. simple process.
0: i saw something obviously you've had this machine for a while but you live streamed the delivery so i'm an old guy i (laughs) have never live streamed anything did you live stream that on linkedin on facebook or how did you do that and Uh,
1: so i've got a youtube channel for better cnc when i first started i I wanted to do a, a start a machine shop series, which mm-hmm. turns out like, like predictable. I don't really have a lot of time for it, but I decided getting a new machine like this. That's just, I was, oh, I was so tickled pink to have this thing. I still am. Uh, mm-hmm. I was like, I want to I want a live stream, the delivery. I want to set it up so other people can yeah. watch it and take part and see what the whole experience is like.
0: Okay. So you did that on YouTube. Yeah. And you have your own YouTube channel. What is that? If someone wanted to check you out,
1: our our handle is just Better CNC. If you look at, you go on YouTube and search Better CNC, or I think it comes comes up as one of the Google results as well.
0: Okay. And again, a neophyte on live streaming. <laughs> if you have a YouTube channel, is it pretty easy to live stream? What can you do it from an iPad or even your phone? How how does that all that work?
1: Yeah. So I believe out of the gate, you can stream from a PC, you can stream from a computer. Uh, mm-hmm. I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to do it for a computer or if I'd have to use my phone because they do have limits on when you can do it on your phone. So i had actually reached out to a small machine shop group on am in and just said, Hey guys, I want to stream my delivery of this machine, but I need at least 50 subscribers.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, and so
1: gotcha. I had a flock of people come over and jump on so I could use my phone if need be. But fortunately I was able to get a webcam set up on one of my
0: computers. And then is that live stream archived? So we went to your channel today. We could go back and see it. So history is being recorded
2: for you. Yeah.
1: It's it's there in the books now.
0: Awesome. (laughs) Do you live stream anything else? Not
1: yet. I've, I've messed around a little bit with Twitch to live stream while I'm working as long as like no customer information or anything revealing like that is visible, obviously, but it's just a format that's becoming bigger and bigger and, and entertainment and culture today. So I figured I may take a stab and see if I can find a way. And so I'm doing it a little bit on Twitch on occasion if I work on the weekends, cause it's a little bit slower, a little bit quieter. But once I'm comfortable with it, I'll probably kick it over to LinkedIn,
2: and all the, all the usual channels as well.
0: How about some of the other social media, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, have you played with any of those?
1: Yeah, I've got an Instagram that ties to my Facebook. So I post on there pretty regularly because that does seem to be be a very active community, manufacturing wise. I nice. put I put hashtags on it like a, let's say machining, CNC machining, Insta machine, and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, just to help get viewers because I've actually gotten work through there as well. I've, I've gotten work through almost every social media channel I'm on,
2: in one way or another. Just to show to show that having that presence brings work in. Yeah do you do any other
0: marketing do you have you spent money making your website more organic seo friendly And seo meaning search engine optimization so that you without paying for it your website comes up higher in results
1: yeah, so I I built the website myself using Wix, and they've actually got a really really good walkthrough on SEO optimization to help make sure you're showing up in Google results the way you need to. I would say I'm I'm very nerdy and very techy when it comes to all the computer stuff. Before mm-hmm. I even had a machine on the floor, I had all my social media pages, I had the website, I had my Google profile presence, all the analytics on the back end tied to it. I'm very 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 keen to make sure that's all very
0: visible. How much time does that take a week?
1: And now that it's all up and running, almost done. I mean, social media takes 30 minutes or so whenever I want to post because I got to figure out what it is
2: and type it out. But right. uh, once the website's up, it's all pretty self, self-maintaining at this point. You
0: have gotten in-depth in the, the technical <laughs> aspects, the, uh, I'll say the, computer programming, the technology and even though you're a small shop, really a lot of the ways that industry 4.0 is moving. Maybe this is a good time to learn about some of your background and where where did you start? how did you get machining DNA in your blood and how did it take you to better cnc?
1: Yeah, so my dad, he's a mechanical engineer, and he worked at T. When I was about to say when I was born, he worked at TI. But when I was around six years old, he started doing projects on the side, engineering projects in particular on the side, just computer work, designing things. But it got to a point where he loaded up all the local machine shops where they couldn't keep up with his work. So he went out and bought a Bridgeport, parked it in our garage, and started doing the work himself. And that eventually grew to a, a $5 million prototype company. Which is where I came up. I got my clock in. I got my first clock in when I was ten
0: years old. What's the name of the company? It was
1: called Rapid Tooling. Uh, it nice. It's since been purchased and has changed forms, but that. Kind of, that was that was where I got my start. I was literally doing load and goes with assembly work and deeper work when I was ten years old.
2: Yeah, that's it's, that's how you learn, right? Yeah,
1: but yeah, I came up there playing with computers. He showed me AutoCAD when I was that young as well because back then we didn't have really have 3D models yet. So he showed me how to use AutoCAD so I can convert the paper prints we got to just geometry lines in our programming software.
2: Mm. And so that's kind of where I really started diving into computers a lot more as well. How did you specifically
0: transition that into learning how to program and, and your LinkedIn profile gives such a bounty of information on your journey. If someone's listening, it hasn't checked you out on LinkedIn, which they probably haven't, how did, how did you start programming? What, what was the impetus to say, this isn't, I I need more automation of software in the shop to make my job better.
1: Yeah. So what got me programming software type stuff? working at my dad's shop, I'd say we were, we were a prototype shop. So all our machines were turning over setups at times a day and production planning for that is, is insane. Tracking right. that many moving movie pieces across about say 20, 20 to 30 employees across 20 work centers, uh, mm-hmm. tracking all those moving parts. And my dad did production planning for a little bit right before I started. But since I could work in every department, anytime he dropped the ball, I was the one coming in on the weekends to. Program the part, run it, inspect it, deburr it, package it, ship it. Because I knew how to do it at every stage of the process. So it got to a point where I got with him and I told him, let me let me start helping you with this and see what I can figure out. Because I'm tired of spending all my weekends up here last minute. Yeah. So I took it over and I started teaching myself how to code in Visual Basic so I could build spreadsheet programs. Where I, I built tools in Microsoft Excel where you never actually even handled the spreadsheet itself. There was a window that popped on top of it. That's kind of where I got my start is just finding ways to save time in that environment. So I didn't have to be up there my time, all the self, myself all the time.
0: And you use Visual Basic? Yeah. So Visual
1: Basic is a programming language that I believe Microsoft developed for all their, their programs.
0: When did you start using that? And is Visual Basic still a good tool to start learning how to program? Or are there other better ways to learn how yeah. to learn uh, basics?
1: So if you work a lot with spreadsheets already, Visual Basic is a great thing to step into because it is there's a lot of resources online to teach yourself and it's a simpler programming language versus other stuff. If you don't use Excel a lot, it still may be a good tool to start with, but I've also started learning Python over this past year as well.
2: So I can start building independent programs that don't have a spreadsheet behind them. What I'm hearing then is that Visual Basic is more spreadsheet
0: thinking and if you've is python maybe you've got a database that isn't as applicable to a spreadsheet and you need to access that or what other sort of things are you doing with python so
1: python's more of a standalone program or standalone coding language visual basic is a great is built on top of excel is the way i always used it so i could take i could take a basic spreadsheet and make it smart using visual basic all built in right there no special add-ons python is if you want to build something completely from scratch with no other programs dependent on it. it is a programming language itself so yeah it's 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 standalone it doesn't have anything else tied to it
0: what are you programming in python can you give us an example yeah so
1: right now as our company is growing and i have more and more needs for this i'm building what will end up kind of being a, a mrp system for us Right now, I'm starting with just basic order tracking where it'll, because I'm a paperless parts user, it'll pull any orders I have out of paperless directly, uh, put them on a spreadsheet with the due date, tells me the date I need to start on the job, the material, material sizes, plating, all the information I need to know about a job at a glance. Mm -hmm. So it is able to pull all of that directly from paperless parts and present it to me in an
0: easy to read manner. Is that... Complete is that a project that's under oh, development? It's
1: it's going to be ongoing. the The end goal is to let's say it's going to it's a software that's going to grow with my business. So as my gotcha. business gets bigger and more complex, this program itself is
2: going to get bigger and more complex.
0: Why did you decide you have the chops to do this? Why did you decide to do this as opposed to go with an off the shelf solution?
1: So what I've found is. I'd say I'm I'm a smaller shop. My goal is to always stay fast paced. I want to be able to do prototyping and production work. instead of quoting prototypes too high and things like that. And from my experience, from what I've seen out there, I came up using E2. I've also used Epicor and a couple of the other big guys out there. Their production planning just isn't isn't quick enough. It's a little bit too complex. It's not showing me the information I really care about at the time I need it. And so I'm basically going to build a proper version of what I built from my dad's shop years ago internally
0: so you processing this jesse you <laughs> created an mrp system for your father's shop then
1: there i specifically created a production planning tool,
0: production so planning I, built, tool.
1: I built a program we used e2 mm-hmm. i built a program that would pull all open orders out of e2 it would schedule them on the machines where they needed to go in a very easy to read format and it pretty much as a production planner, I didn't have to tell the machinists what they were doing for the day. They could look at their queue and know exactly yes. what's next. And the system would just alert me if something was running a little bit behind. If we had a backlog of overbooked schedule period coming up, it just raised the flags. So I just had to pay attention to where I needed to pay attention.
0: What are you solving with what you're creating?
1: So the biggest thing to me, any anytime I've built a program, the main thing I think about, I call it clicks to goal as a metric. So how many clicks, how many, paid, how many times do you have to click the mouse to accomplish what you want to accomplish? Uh, and, and E2, that was an absolute nightmare. But it's being able to change things quickly, as well as a lot of software. They show you all of the information all at once, when really I only need to know about 20% of the information at any one point in time. So I'm building my program to where it only shows me that part that I care about and not the whole picture as long as the program can keep the shop flowing on itself i just need to know about the emergencies i just need to know about where we're falling behind what we can catch up on things like that that's really where I'm, I'm putting a lot of my focus
0: do you have a erp system as a backbone that you're using their your api to plug in your solution
1: so right now it's built from scratch It's a as what I'm building myself plugs into paperless parts because that's where my orders come in at. But mm-hmm. beyond that, it's it's standalone. The format of everything should be able to plug in with, with any ERP, like I did originally with my first program where it tied into E2. It's just a matter of connecting the names. The yeah. part numbers here goes to the part number here.
0: I totally understand what you're doing, or at least the way you did it at Rapid, because we used some erp software and i sort of said it was a black box and we put our own skin on it and we would as you said there's a lot of information that is presented to you however you don't want to see all that information and in fact it is confusing for some of the people Mm -hmm. so to narrow the scope of information in essence that's what we did with our skin and allowed people to move on with their job
2: yeah
0: i'm gonna go somewhere completely different however <laughs> as hecky as you are you also are pretty savvy on the marketing side and one thing that caught my attention was the tape on boxes that has better cnc on them why are you doing that what do you think the benefit is and how much extra cost is it to have a roll of tape that has your company name on it versus buying something, you know, from New
1: Line. So the way I think about it, there's another big company in the space, Exometry. I'm sure most people have heard of them. And it's very much, let's say, if you talk to other machine shops, it's very much a love or or hate relationship. But I always say, everyone knows who they are. Mm -hmm. And same thing with Amazon. You can recognize the Amazon box from 30 feet away. Just by the tape. So between those and I used to have one supplier that I would get a lot of work from there, where they always use blue packing tape. So anytime I, knew mm-hmm. I had something coming in, I could spot it amongst 30 boxes in our shipping area and say that's the part that I need right there. So for me, I want to be I want to be the first spot in everybody's head. I want to be the go-to. Remember my my yellow bee and my logo. So I put mm-hmm. it on the boxes. Everybody gets a sticker usually when I ship out, at least the first order. Any anywhere I could put my name. If anybody else is doing it, why not
2: me too?
0: I love it. And the other benefit is that engineers always need boxes. So you will often find box in or boxes in their cube, in their areas, maybe in a, a little lab that they have. And why not have your name where they're seeing yeah. it all the time, right? It's not. It's not a one and done, that box. Obviously a lot of times it does happen this way where the yeah. parts get shipped and the box gets thrown away. However, there are enough times where those boxes linger around and they're yeah. advertising for you. They yeah. use it
1: for storage and they'll pass, like they'll put some parts in it and give it to a different engineer and say, Hey, here's these parts. And they'll see that, and look me up and find me and yeah, anywhere, anywhere I can put my name, I'm going to put it.
0: <laughs> you never find that some of the engineers won't tell other engineers in the same company about you because they, uh, the, they're sort of hoarding you as a supplier and they don't want other folks in their company to overwhelm you with business. So they won't be able to get the parts when they need them. Has that ever happened to you?
1: Oh yeah. I had an instance recently where I got in with a large company and I work with a few engineers in this one department and i am set up where they can pay by purchase order. Yeah. Uh, so they'll submit POs and I'll get the work and then somebody else in that same company found me independently. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I sent them a quote. They didn't realize I was an approved supplier, so they paid by credit card. After that order, I reached out to them. I said, just so you know, here's here's my supplier number if you just want to use POs next time.
0: Yeah. You would think that they would share a trusted and valued supplier, let everybody know, because it's for the betterment of the company. However, people are people, and they are protective of their sources. It where I'm going with this is don't assume because you're doing business with someone or a few folks in a company that you're grabbing all the business that's there. This is where definitely going on LinkedIn, trying to find other people, connecting with them. A lot of times you can figure out their email addresses based upon the ones that you already have. And even going in, dropping off parts in person, that has a, a huge bang for buck if you can do that once in a while.
1: Oh yeah, no, and, and a lot of times I'll say I'll get I'll get to different groups of engineers because you usually start with an engineer, but once you get set up with the company, fingers crossed, you get put in touch with the buyer because mm. the buyer will co- often cover several engineers of different groups. When I was working back at Rapid Tooling, I was handling quoting and purchasing and stuff like that and I ended up getting growing our re- connection with Raytheon from five engineers to about 20 to 30 because <laughs> I got to that buyer I got a good relationship with them so as other engineers came to them need to pass out work
2: I was able to become the go-to source for the buyer who
0: works for a variety of groups good relationship with a buyer how do you create a good relationship with a buyer and
1: more stuff parts through the door but using them to get to the buyer and a lot of times it's just a matter of, I'll be checking in with the buyer. I make sure they have what they need. I'll make sure I answer promptly. If there's any questions, I'll give them a quick phone call and I'm always, hey, Jesse, I'm better here. Just wanted to see whatever the question is. Just that, that personal touch, that relationship. I don't want to just be another email in their inbox. Yeah. Try and go a little bit out of my way. I check in with them if I haven't heard anything in a little bit, give them updates on orders well ahead of time if there's an issue coming up or even if we're, being, if we're beating the schedule. If we're delivering a week earlier, I'll say, hey, is this okay that we delivered a week
2: early? But some companies mm-hmm. won't accept early work.
0: Right. Yeah, that's important. You mentioned Do you Are they a source of business for you? Or are there any other marketplaces that you work with and bring business to you?
1: Yeah, so I actually started my company almost exclusively with with Exometry. Working another job, I wanted to make sure I didn't cross paths or step on any toes, as well as having just a machine with limited capability. It gave me the ability to pick and choose the work I took. Instead of no bidding things, I could just go directly to the order, which was super beneficial starting out. My first year, they're about 70% of my business, but at this stage, they're 10 to 15% of my company. I also use mfg.com. I pay for access to their job board as well, which is pretty, I call that pretty much my only marketing, real marketing expense where I'm reaching out. And I've gotten a good amount of work from them as well. And that's also very much about the relationship and trying to build a, a connection with the customer.
0: When you say relationship, the relationship with the company posting on the MFG job board.
1: Yeah. So a lot of times they'll put up, they put up their what they're looking for quotes on, so everybody's open to bidding, it, but I usually send them a follow up email, letting, if I, if I can't send the quote right away, I send them an email directly saying, Hey, we're working on this. I'll send them a quote directly as well as submit it through the MFG system. Cause a lot of times with the paperless quote, they'll, they'll buy the order through
2: directly through there and completely bypass MFG. Mm. The knock on MFG in the past has been that it's Low bid always
0: wins. Is that true? Do you do you see that, or what would you say about that?
1: It definitely depends. It kind of did. but say with like most things, you can't control the work coming in, but the work got, I've gotten on there, I think, is because a lot of times I'll see customers, I'll see companies looking at my website, and so I know uh-huh. they're looking at my bid, they're looking at me, and having a nicer presence online versus somebody that has out of date out a date website or no website helps me stick out.
0: You you said something so important, how many companies how many of your I'll say competitors, other machine shops have out of date or you know, we'll say two thousand ish websites and i'm I'm throwing it out there more you know that you know the importance of having a clean, crisp, fresh website with some content, and it's not that hard and I get it. A shop owner is maybe older, doesn't have the technology background, but man, find someone, whether it's someone you know, a relative who's younger, who lives and breathes, this sort of stuff. Refresh your website, because what you're saying is so true. People are website and check you out and if it doesn't pass a smell test, you know it's almost like the and, and jump in here anytime, Jesse. But oh yeah, I'm getting on my bandwagon. It's it's almost <laughs> like though the digital equivalent of walking into a shop and seeing a shop that's dirty and dark versus a shop that's clean and bright. That's what a website conveys these days, right?
1: Oh yeah. No one of my one of my favorite things is. When I first started, like my my website, if you look at my website, it's been pretty much been that way since before I had a machine on the floor. Mm. And literally I had this tiny little one and a half horsepower machine parked in my garage. And I got a call from a company who's now my biggest customer because they were looking for a new supplier, came across my website, loved it and called me. And I got yeah. to talking to him about the type of work that was come that they wanted to pass out, and I told I I told him I was like, sir, unfortunately I don't can't really handle your work right now. I just kicked off my business two months ago. Uh, it's just me and a small machine in my garage right now, and that that almost blew him away because he's he said like just my from my website presence he couldn't tell that I was I was one guy in a garage, and that it just stuck out beyond everybody else that he was looking at. That's the reason he called me is because my yeah.
0: website. It makes a difference.
1: Oh yeah, no that that's that's I've gotten so much work through my website versus other places I've worked because we, our websites weren't up to
2: date or didn't exist.
0: Yeah, Jesse, we're we're getting up here on an hour or so, maybe we even crossed that. I I could keep going probably for another hour. <laughs> I love what you're doing. I love the you got the basics. You know how to make parts. You're having fun though, implementing automation technology. You're not muscling through and saying, okay, I've got to buy more machines. I've got to hire more people. Yes, you do as you grow. However, with your drills by moving the carbide and using the technology of the tooling library, you're able to reduce your cycle time. So that puts off a little bit when you have to buy the next machine. And that's what I I love about meshing the iron with the atoms. It, this is how, this is how it's done today and how you can grow with less equipment, smaller facilities, less people. And the beautiful thing about atoms is once you implement them, a lot of times it's one and done they keep working it's coming up with it first time and the courage i'm going to i'm going to put it out there it does take a lot of courage for you maybe it's a natural inclination having the courage though to say we are going to try something new and we are going to make it a standard And understand that not everything is going to work. There are going to be, I'll say, quote failures. However, I look at something as it's not a failure unless you don't learn something. And my suspicion is you're always learning. Oh
2: yeah, even
0: when it doesn't work out.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I'll I'll get, I'll get a kick in my head, and I'll try something. I'll try writing a part a different way, or I'll spend. Let's say like writing programs, I'll spend a whole weekend, 20 hours over over a weekend trying something. By the end of it, I'm like, oh, no, that's not going to work the way I wanted. But I still learned X, Y, Z that I can reapply in so many different ways. There's so many little things that you don't realize that you could learn from trying something, even as minor, no matter how big or small it is
0: it is going to be a lot of fun watching your journey over the next few years i think you're going to build a (laughs) industry 4.0 shop and maybe we'll come back and we'll tap in down the road into other things that you're doing ways that shop owners who want to follow your path can look at you and say yeah it works i can put these in place too and though you are a small shop owner I really encourage you to think of yourself as a leader and a trailblazer for a lot of shop owners across the country who are reading your posts on the variety of social media who are listening to this podcast and you like other people give you the little threads of ideas you're you're giving them the threads of ideas the examples the proof that this stuff does work and it can work Both large shops as well as small shops. So, thanks so much for your your time today, Jesse. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, definitely. I appreciate the the comment and being on here and inviting me on. I'd say I love, I love, I love. I grew up in the industry. It's literally the only thing I know, and I enjoy learning something every day doing it. I love watching the machines go to town and experimenting and helping others. About say, anybody ever needs anything, feel free to reach out. I love posting just to get those conversations going where. I can learn a little bit from somebody else. They can learn a little bit from me. To me, that's another big part of the fun for me.
0: What's the best way to reach you? Best
1: way to reach me is jump on my website and email us. Send me an email directly at jesse at bettercnc.com. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Reddit. I'm on Instagram. Pretty much anything out there. Accessibility is a big thing for us.
0: Awesome. Anything else you would want to share with someone listening today
1: biggest thing is even if you think you have the latest and greatest and best way of doing it which a lot of machinists tend to think that they found the best way of doing it there's going to be a better way keep hunting and keep chasing something new
2: i love
0: it i love (laughs) it there there is a better way and yeah
1: there's always a better
0: way you are the epitome of that both in your your company name and how you put that into practice if you're listening today. Perhaps step back and have the courage to say, you know, I think I'm the best at this, but actually, how can that even be better? And think about that mindset and how that will help you raise the bar for your shop and also encourage your team members to contribute to raising the bar for the shop because it is certainly a team effort and there's no reason that you have to do all the heavy lifting yourself. Become better. Until next time, keep those spindles turning and those lasers cutting. Have a better day. Thanks for listening to the Job Shop Show podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe. So future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. You can also leave an honest rating and review on Apple podcasts. Not only do I read every single one, it also helps me understand what content matters most to you. Thanks again for listening to the job shop show.